This episode has been brought to you in part by the Toronto Heschel School. You are invited to attend their open house on November 10th to discover what makes Heschel special. Visit torontoheschel.org for more details. That's Toronto, H-E-S-C-H-E-L dot org. Hi, everybody. I'm Ralph Benmergi. Welcome to Yehopitzville, brought to you by Pear Tree Canada. Well, you know, we've been interviewing a lot of different people on Yehopitzville who have lived in different parts of the country, but we figured maybe it's time to sort of get an overview of what it is to be Jewish, the 300,000 plus people who say they're Jewish in Canada, and uh, what it's like to be in little towns, big cities, but what is Jewish identity and all of that? So to do that, Robert Brim is a professor of sociology at the University of Toronto. He's also the S.D. Clark chair in sociology at U of T. Uh, He's a published author, um, cited like crazy if you're of the academic persuasion. And um, his books uh, include New Society and his latest, Sociology, Compass for a New Social World. And he joins me now. Hi, Robert. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you doing, Ralph? Pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, Where where were you born? St. John, New Brunswick. And what was the Jewish community in St. John, New Brunswick like? Uh, very energetic and very small. When I was a kid, there were about 250 Jews living in St. John and a population of 100,000. And uh, I recall as a, as a, as a young kid, uh, having a Jewish activity every night of the week, except for Friday. We had Young Judea, we had Hebrew school, we had junior congregation, we had uh, even a, a Jewish gym class on Monday nights. So it was, it was a very tight knit community. Okay, and, and trying to oh, imagine. We also had a we also had a cub a cub pack a Jewish cub pack. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to imagine Jewish gym night. Yeah, <laughs> but, you know, you go, you go. <laughs> I'm so I'm pooped. Just I'm you full. Go. I, yeah. I'm full. <laughs> That's right. You know, my, my, one of my boys was on a. Uh, a basketball team at uh, Paul Pena in Toronto, and uh, they were losing badly. And some of the kids were sitting there dejected. And I look over at my son, and he's he's uh, spelling out loser. Loser. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't care. He doesn't care if they won or lost. He was not fiercely competitive. <laughs> so, you know, uh, now people in Moncton, when they need kosher meat, they go to St. John to get it, right? Really? Yeah, because that's the only that's place you can find it. Still. In, in my day, there was a guy in the St. John City Market, a Jewish guy by the name of Eddie Gordon, who sold meat, including kosher meat, and then they found out it was horse meat. Right. So, so he was immediately fired from that from that job. From Galloped St. John, I'm surprised. The... My mother used to get uh, kosher meat shipped in from Montreal. Wow. Yeah, it was dry ice. The whole routine. She'd get it, you know, for uh, supply for several months. Well, in, in the Maritimes, you know, for Jewish life, the, the the magnet was Montreal, right? It wasn't Toronto. Oh, my, Toronto was barely known. Yeah. Yeah, Montreal was the center of the universe. My father owned a small clothing store, and he used to bring all of his goods in from Montreal. He would make around four trips a year to Montreal by train and bring goods in for his little store. So, yes, we had relatives in Montreal. My first plane ride was to Montreal. Uh, it really was the center of the world. And what was the name of your father's store? Well, Albert's menswear. You say it like we should know. Yes, of course. <laughs> well, for, for you an idiot, it's, it's Albert's men's store. What else would it be called? His name was Albert. 
I thought it'd be brims or something. No, you know, no. Uh, fine clothiers. No. You know. What did and he I, sell I mostly? Did he sell everything, the whole gamut from casual to formal? Or oh, just, absolutely. Absolutely yeah. everything. In about, uh, I don't know, a couple of hundred square feet. Right, right. Everything was packed in. And he was the bar mitzvah go-to guy, right? Oh, absolutely he was. Although there were competitors. There were many Jewish merchants in St. John, uh, and many of them were involved in menswear. So my cousin, for example, once my father opened his little store on Union Street, my cousin thought, that's a really good idea. So he opened a store right across the street from him. That was Harris's <laughs> menswear. So they became <laughs> relatives. They became uh, competitors. And next door to my father was Jack's. That's Jack Levine, of course. So he, you know, we had three Jews and selling shmatas in the same uh, in the same block, staring at each other like, "Oi, you, could, you couldn't have found another street. We would have killed you, know, you to look for another street." Because my father was next door to Jack's, people would come into my father's store and say, "Is this Jack's?" And my father would say, "Of course, it's Jack's." <laughs> and the guy who sells horse meat is over there. Yeah, right. <laughs> ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. Two hundred and fifty. Out of a hundred thousand people, wow, that yeah. is tiny. That is tiny. Yeah, is How tiny. do you think that, in, in in terms of your development, because you were clearly immersed in Jewish life, how did you see yourself in the greater community of Saint John? In the greater community, I was completely marginalized. I mean, my parents were born in Eastern Europe, which in itself was un- unusual in Saint John. Most of the Jewish residents of Saint John had been there for generations already. They'd come in the early 20th century, not in the mid 20th century. My parents met in St. John. My father came after World War II. He was a a Holocaust survivor. So my first language is Yiddish. That's what we spoke at home. And as far as I know, and I'm very proud of this fact, I'm the only person in my generation east of Quebec who grew up speaking Yiddish, which means there were very few people I could talk to. So I felt I felt quite marginalized uh, in vis-a-vis in the general community. Uh, and how do you think that affected your 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 growing up? What what kinds of pivots and adjustments did you make? Did you did you want to pull towards? No, trust me, I'm just like you people. Or were, were you more entrenched? No, there was no chance for developing a high level of trust. I was. Uh, accused of on several occasions of having killed Jesus. I told people that I, I, the kids, I don't even know who the guy is. How can I have killed him? (laughs) But, uh, you know, I I was uh, not, not very well accepted by the non-Jews in the community when I was a a small kid. That changed, of course, especially uh, by the time I went to high school. But uh, it was a fairly rough upbringing because I grew up in a working class neighborhood where there were almost no Jews. Hmm. Most of the Jews in the community were already middle class, upper middle class, and they lived in areas other than the one I lived in. Right, right. So interesting. Everybody's experience, you know, the the otherness that we have to deal with. So many of us in in so many different ways, not just Jews, obviously, but just the otherness. For me, me it was a double otherness, because not only was I not accepted by the non-Jewish community, but I was an odd man out or an odd boy out in the Jewish community. Since most of the people were, I thought, highly assimilated by today's standards, they weren't, of course, but they didn't speak Yiddish to start with. They didn't know anything about, you know, the Altaheim, that is the old country. 
so I felt marginalized in the Jewish community as well. Mm. So maybe you want to end the interview here because I was so atypical. <laughs> <laughs> well, not really, because I mean, as you're speaking, I'm thinking of my own experience as a Sephardic Jew from Morocco who comes to an Ashkenazi Jewish reality in Toronto. Right. Uh, and I'm, I go to schools where everybody is Ashkenazi except me and one other person who's Moroccan. Right. So there's always, that's what I mean with that otherness. There's always a babushka doll with another one inside it that's even yeah. smaller, right? So, yeah. And who's more screwed up. Yeah. It's more screwed up. <laughs> <laughs> so when we think of the effect of, here's a question. How, how does someone in, uh, reinvent or learn a Jewish identity in this, as we start thinking of all the people who've been on Yehobitzville, you know, people in Kamloops, people, you know, all over the country, do do they have to necessarily drift away from a religious idea of being a Jew into a, a cultural one? And then we can talk about that whole piece about can you sustain Judaism through just culture and not religion? But what has been your experience of the way we have adjusted to being in not the big cities in this country? Well, I, I think it's very difficult to generalize. I think that there are variations from one family to the next, as a matter of fact. Uh, I can only speak about my family intimately. And in my family, I had one quite religious person, my mother, and one apikoris uh, in my father, who was an atheist and a socialist. Right. So it was an interesting family environment. We kept kosher. That was my mother's doing. On the other hand, every Yom Kippur during the break, my father and I would go out and have a lobster sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, I'll have I, a roll. <laughs> did I have a religious upbringing? Yes. Did I have a non-religious upbringing? Yes. yes. Also, I had both. You're a red diaper baby eating lobster rolls. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But but also kosher food at home, and I That's was quite right. fastidious about it uh, at huh. home. Yeah. Why? Well, it was my mother's influence. I knew that, that those are the rules of the household. Right. You couldn't mix milk and meat. You couldn't eat certain kinds of food. And I accepted it as, as the natural order of things that in the home, one keeps kosher and outside one goes crazy. One goes crazy. Yeah. So, so, so you know, that's, that's my own individual story. And, you know, in that context, I think that <laughs> I was more influenced by my father than my mother. I'm no longer deeply religiously inclined or even shallowly religiously inclined, but I'm very much a Jew. I, I study Jewish subjects, part-time at least. It's not my only interest, but it's one of them. I've translated books from Yiddish to English recently. Uh, I, I, I speak Hebrew. I studied in Israel. I mean, it's a big thing for me. So, okay, let's talk about the idea of, is Judaism sustainable as a cultural practice without the rigor of a religious infrastructure? I believe so. I believe so. I mean, I think I'm a living example of that. I mean, my, my kids uh, went, all of them, to, uh, to Bialik Hebrew School. One of them went on to chat. Uh, they're all with Jewish spouses, or in one case, a Jewish fiancé. They take their Jewishness seriously. Uh, but again, it's not a particularly religious form of Judaism. It's a cultural form. And it's, I can't predict the future, but I can tell you that their Jewish identity is resilient and it will be resilient among their children. Beyond that, I can't see. So is it, is it when it comes to things like Torah 
and conception, Jewish conceptions of, of, of deity and God, um, do those things matter at this point, or are they just sort of osmotic? Like they're just part of what you are for, through the culture, and you just keep the culture going, but you don't have an ongoing conversation well, about the religion. But the culture is partly a matter of religious ritual. I mean, you know, having family dinners for uh, Rosh Hashanah and uh, Yom Kippur, and uh, no, not for Yom Kippur, but Rosh Hashanah, Pesach, having seder, lobster for Yom Kippur. Yeah, lobster for Yom Kippur. <laughs> uh, you know, those family gatherings are extremely important. Uh, we go to Shul, perhaps not as often as we should, because that's part of the ritual. Uh, what do you, so, when you, okay, let me ask you when you're in Shul as part of the ritual, yeah, and there's all this script, uh, scripture that you're reading, um, yeah. is, it, is it just it doesn't matter. It's just being with people who happen who are Jewish too, and singing songs you remember. Or is there any kind of maybe I should look at this stuff and see what it's telling me? Um, you know, there's an old joke, and I'm sorry you've probably heard it many times about uh, a man walking down the streets and he sees uh, Cohen and Goldstein, and he says, "Cohen Goldstein, where are you going?" And Cohen says, "I'm going to Shul." And Goldstein said, yeah, I'm going with them. So the guy asked, Cohen, I understand why you're going to Shoal. You're going, what? Tell me. He said, yeah, I'm going to talk to God. But Goldstein, you're an atheist. Why are you going to Shoal? He says, I'm going to talk to Cohen. <laughs> so I went to talk to Cohen. Right. Now I have, I have friends there. I have acquaintances. I have a few relatives. And uh, I have my family. And it's good, you know. Yeah, it's community. Shevet achim gam yachad, you know. Exactly. So I, I have a, uh, someone I know who goes every week, and he goes for Kiddush. And he says, I'm not being glib. I go for Kiddush. But what happens when you live in Yehupitzville, and there is no Kiddush? Uh, how, do, how does Judaism, or does Judaism transform itself in those environments for the small-town Canadian Jew? Well, look, first of all, I have to tell you that most of the Jews who lived in St. John, New Brunswick, left. The kids did. Uh, very few people of my generation remain. I mean, people my age in St. John now must number three or four, Wow! right? We had a Hebrew school that was a going concern yeah. uh, with many grades, but uh, that was then. That was the 1950s and early 60s. Uh, so everybody left. They went to Montreal, they went to Toronto, Vancouver. So to the degree that they've remained Jewish, they've had to go to larger communities. Um, the people who were left behind, most of them intermarried and are not raising their kids as Jews. So we left. Hmm. That was our answer. That's how we retained our Jewish. We also, I should mention as kids, had uh, something very powerful that affected our lives. Most of the kids in the Maritimes went to Camp Kadima in the summer. And Camp Kadima, of course, is the best camp in the world, as everybody knows. <laughs> <laughs> it's like they know Albert's men's work. Um, <laughs> It, it was an, a very intense six-week experience. And as a matter of fact, it's the only camp in Canada, and perhaps in, I don't know about North America, that has a, a full-length documentary made about it recently. It was in Jewish film festivals a couple of years ago and actually played here in Toronto uh, two years ago. So, you know, Camp Kadima was an institution that brought us all together. Right. If we were brought together for six weeks every summer, we also left more or less en masse. When we went to university, most of the people tended to go to places like Gill. Right. Uh, I was unusual. I went to the big city. I went to Halifax to study at Dalhousie. Mm. Mm. You know, for me, I felt like such a, 
such an important pro- how could I go to McGill? <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you leave, when you leave though, did you feel like um I don't know if the right words are, you know, that you were turning your back on keeping alive that Jewish St. John, or it was just like, no, no, I got to get out of here. I, I, no, I, I had to get out. It was, I found it very parochial and confining. Yeah. And uh, I was excited to be in the big city of Halifax. And even <laughs> more when I finished my bachelor's degree in Jerusalem, it was a real liberation. Now, tell me about that. To be from a, a really small Jewish community in, in New Brunswick, to going to Israel itself and becoming, for the first time in your life, the dominant culture. Yeah, it was great. It was wonderful. What's to say? I mean, I, I, you know, I went, I went through all of the normal things that a Jew from the diaspora who knows little about Israel went through. It was amazing to me that, you know, you had Jewish police officers here and Jewish <laughs> criminals and big criminals, not just pretty ones, you know. Yeah, it was it was a wonderful experience. I really enjoyed it. I, you bumped into the butcher with the horse meat, and he no, <laughs> started no, a new life in Israel. <laughs> I do remember actually reading the Jerusalem Post when I was in journalism school. So I had to do a review of of, of articles and written mm-hmm. by the correspondent who was there, whose name was Wolf Blitzer. Actually, right, Jer- Wolf Blitzer. I read him regularly. The Jerusalem right. Post. So, and I remember reading about Jewish criminality and, and thinking. Wow, this is not how we present ourselves to people. That we we don't have criminals, we don't have addicts, we don't have you know uh, aberrant people. We're, we're you know we're the people who go to higher learning and have Nobel prizes. But you know, a society is filled with everybody. So there we were. Right, and and by the way, Israel is not unique in that regard. Uh, in Eastern Europe, there were many many Jewish criminals before the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, the German mafia started speaking Yiddish to use many of the Hebrew and Aramaic terms so they wouldn't be understood by the police wow. or by anybody else. They, they picked up Jewish word, Yiddish words to use. And of right. course, the, uh, the, the trade in prostitutes in Buenos Aires was a Jewish monopoly. Wow. So, we're, I mean, we're talking about, you know, even up to the 1950s. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Jewish criminality has been, you know, widespread uh, not so much in North America, of course, Mayor Lansky accepted, but... Uh, Bugsy Siegel. What? Bugsy Siegel. Yeah, Bugsy Siegel. Another one. Yeah. A nice a man. Friend. He came over all the time. He was a very nice man. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Try the veal. His wife cooked a nice horse meat, <laughs> you wouldn't believe. <laughs> That's right. You call that... I always talk about the Ashkenazi food all starts with a K, right? <laughs> and it's beige. So yeah. It's the whole thing. Um can you, though, see a time of a post-religious Judaism or even a post-congregational Judaism in Canada? Because there are, in millennials and in you know, younger generations, there is a, an affinity to the culture, but, but not to the religion, and uh, not as strong an affinity for Israel as previous uh, generations. How is all that going to play itself out on, on a Canadian landscape, but outside of places like Toronto, where there's oh, the vast majority of Jews in, in the country? Well, you know, for a community to persist over time, uh, it needs places where people can meet. It needs institutions and it needs congregations of some sort. So the choice we now face is that we uh, tr- either transform existing institutions or create new ones. I think for a lot of people, even who people who are not religious, uh, they belong to synagogue because what's, what's the alternative? <clears throat> there aren't many institutions that allow Jews to congregate. 
Uh, I expect and hope that new institutions will be created. I'm involved in a political institution that brings Jews, including many millennials together, namely the New Israel Fund of Canada. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there may be more springing up. Uh, But I think that both things are going to happen, that some institutions will be transformed. They're going to create, uh, they're going to cater more to the non-religious needs, that is, synagogues will cater more to the non-religious needs of the Jewish community, the social, political, and cultural needs. Uh, And then new institutions will emerge as well, new political and cultural institutions. I mean, uh, just to give you a small example, uh, there's a bit of a Yiddish revival at the University of Toronto. Uh, There is a Yiddish circle that meets online weekly, uh, people who are studying Yiddish, who are translating Yiddish, who are doing comparative literature, in which Yiddish is one of the comparators. And that has also created a smallish community of scholars, uh, students and professors, who uh, get a lot of satisfaction and community from uh, meeting others who have similar interests. So transformation of synagogues, the secularization, if you want, of synagogues, plus the creation of new institutions, I think can allow the community to continue in a a somewhat new way. I also believe that there are many Jews who feel just as I do, that going to synagogue is important not to talk to God so much as to talk to the Kohen. Right. But, you know, there's also the other thing of the renewal of Judaism and um, the uh, those who are Orthodox. I have lots of relatives who are Orthodox and uh, kind of see themselves as the keepers of the flame. But I also, yeah. you know, involve, I'm, I'm involved in the Jewish renewal movement, which has right. all over the place. But there, there's that ability to, you know, Halifax, I'll take Halifax, for instance, the largest um, Buddhist uh, per capita community in in North America, mostly made up of Jews, of, of, of Jewish Buddhists who moved from New York to Boulder to follow their 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 leader, and then to Halifax and, and the Shambhala Center. Um, so there's ways that I think people find their way back, mysticism, Kabbalah. So I, I think perhaps the the old retail version of Judaism isn't appealing to the next generations as much, but they still have a yearning to belong, but also perhaps a yearning for greater meaning than uh, a material secular life can give them sometimes, where they want a bigger questions and bigger answers. I, I would agree with you, Ralph. There is a revival and more, more power to the revivalists. I'm very much a pluralist in my way of thinking about this. I think we have to have many new efflorescences, many new institutions and ways of being Jewish uh, develop over the coming years in order to uh, have the continuity in the community. And um, I I think that your involvement and the involvement of others uh, in in this movement is uh, is a very positive thing. Uh, You know, we're individuals and we have individualized tastes and uh, we therefore need a very wide variety of ways in which to appeal to people in order for the community to to continue uh, in a new form. Yeah, and I guess there's also that tension between the, the idea of the individual, which is in a neoliberal age has really been fortified, you know, and is being amplified during this uh, pandemic of, you know, it's me, I get to do what I want, don't tell me what to do. Uh, and the collectivism of religion, that, you know, there are things that are for the greater good, not your good. Yeah, but you you know, Ralph, the, the, the thing is, you, you can't, nobody can develop their individuality without others. 
you need to be involved with others in order to know who you are. Because others tell us that our interaction with others informs us about what we are and who we are. We see ourselves through the eyes of others. So there's no individuality in isolation. There's only individuality in within a collectivity. Does the virtual world uh, offer, you know, sometimes people, uh, Jewish people decide they're going to move from the bigger cities. And they and it's a question for them as to how do they maintain their Jewishness in places where there is no sign of it in Beaverton, Ontario, or in, you know, uh, Wawa. I mean, they, they want to move to the country. They want to be out there. Is there a possibility that there can be a reinvention of a, a kind of a virtual viscera where people can attach themselves to Judaism through, you know, right now we have people who are doing virtual synagogue and rather enjoying it, you know, right. They can live wherever they want and they watch the service and be part of it. I I think that synagogues, in addition to uh, trying to broaden out and create more cultural and uh, not, let's say non-religious activities for their congregants need to think much more seriously about going online. Because uh, there are people, and we don't have to go to Beaverton, there are people living in suburban uh, Toronto or Montreal who uh, live far from the synagogues in Toronto and perhaps can't afford um, to join a synagogue because it's pretty expensive, and they're investing all their money in their mortgage. Uh, Those people need to be brought into the fold, and they can only be brought into the fold at a reasonable or at no cost by going online. So I would love to see services and other cultural activities of synagogues broadcast widely so that people in the York region of Toronto, for example, never mind Beaverton, can become more involved. People who can't afford synagogue and who can't afford because they got little kids can't, can't afford the time to come down to services. So yes, there is a, a very a, a great potential there, but I don't think that synagogues have woken up yet to the potential that exists. They may because... Formal membership, I understand, is falling in many of the non-Orthodox synagogues, in Toronto at least. So uh, the whole idea of recruiting uh, people from the margins may uh, may take off in the coming decade or so. At least I hope so. What's the name of the uh, synagogue in St. John? Sha'arei Tzedek. And is it still functioning? They sold it. The, the, the building we had as the synagogue used to be a church. Mm-hmm. Uh, very nice building. And it was sold some time ago uh, to, I think, another church. So it had an existence of about, I don't know, 75 or 80 years as a Jewish institution. But it was a church either side of that. They probably removed the stained glass Magen David. Uh, in, <laughs> <laughs> but now, it kind of reminds uh, you of going to uh, uh, the Andalusia in Spain, in Cordoba, yeah. where you go in and it was it was a synagogue, then it was the church, then it was a mosque, and now it's a yeah. church, and then it right. would be a <laughs> you know. um, Now there is a Jewish community center, but I understand they bought a building that used to be a funeral home that where they now hold a minion from time to time. Perhaps that's metaphorically important, but it used yeah. to be a funeral home. Uh, but they hold a minion from time to time. We have a St. John Jewish Historical Society there, hmm. which is run by a non-Jew, incidentally. Hmm. But it's quite an active organization. Uh, so it's, you know, it's, it's shrunk. I want to talk to the person who's running that, who's not Jewish. I think I'll find it for you. Hope it's so. That'll be good. Yeah. If you know the name, shoot it my way, my friend. Uh, yeah, I will. I'll send you a, an email. 
Well, listen, thank you for this conversation. I really appreciate it. Uh, I have now images in my head of lobster rolls, horse meat, uh, <laughs> a schmata war in St. John. That's right. <laughs> By the way, you might consider changing the, the name of your program. Oh, yeah. Because Yehupitz in Sholem Aleichem's work was a metaphor for Kiev. Absolutely. I, I spoke Kiev, about this when we I first I have to watched. remind you, when Sholem Aleichem wrote, even in the late 19th century, Kiev was bigger than Montreal or Toronto. Yeah, it yeah. Quarter, it had a quarter of a million people. I think Montreal had 150,000. Well, when so, I started this podcast, I said to people, you know, Yehobitzville was supposed to mean when you went from what you understood in the shtetl to this big life out there, you're going to Yehobitzville. Right. But we've turned it on its head and said, if you're if you're not in the big city, then you're going to Nowheresville, the Yehobitzville, yeah. right? So yeah, absolutely. But, but the present day uh, usage of the word has changed from going to the big city to leaving the big city to go to the small town. So Which it's is kind why of I'm encouraging your readers to read Sholem Aleichem so they'll know the truth. I love Sholem Aleichem. <laughs> Thank you so much for this conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ralph. A pleasure. Robert Brim is a professor of sociology at the University of Toronto and the S.D. Clark Chair in Sociology, published author, uh, cited thousands of times, which is what an academic appreciates, because that means that their work is layering itself into others' work and being built upon, which is the idea, I believe, of academia one way or another. Uh, New Society is one of his books. Uh, they're available on Amazon and other places. His latest is Sociology Compass for a New Social World. Thank you, Robert Brim. And uh, that is it for You Hope It's Hill, sponsored by Pear Tree Canada, reducing the after-tax cost of giving for Canadian major gift owners. Learn more at peartreecanada.com. I'm Ralph Benmergi, the host. Our producer is Michael Freeman. Our music is by Louis Samayo. And if you want to travel with us across this great country, visiting more small Jewish communities, subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to hear more of my work, I host another podcast of my own called Not That Kind of Rabbi. And I have a new book out called I Thought He Was Dead. And the Canadian Jewish News has kindly uh, published a, an excerpt from that book, if you'd like a little taste. And if you want to hear more Canadian Jewish stories, you can find them at the Canadian Jewish News' website, the cjn.ca. If you want to join the CJN Circle, which is a whole new idea, you get quarterly magazines, hard copy, invitations to live events, and a weekly printable edition. Learn more at the cjn.ca slash circle. Take care of each other. I'll see you soon on your hope it's The Limud Toronto Festival takes place on Sunday, November 21st. Limud features educators, performers, authors, activists, and innovators from around the world. The Limud Festival of Jewish Learning celebrates creativity, diversity, inclusivity, and discussion. Everyone is welcome. All tickets to Limud are pay what you can. Learn more at limud.ca.